Hello, everybody. Welcome to Between the Jigs, an occasional podcast that comes to you from the Rejigged Festival in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, Canada. I want to acknowledge that this area is also called Mi'kma'ki and is the unceded and ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq. I'm Christine Donnelly-Mong, and today I'm presenting a conversation with author Ronan O'Driscoll. Ronan's recently published a novel called Chief O'Neill, based on the larger-than-life events of Francis O'Neill. Why should you care about Francis O'Neill? Well, if you play Irish music, especially in the U.S. or Canada, you no doubt have a dog-eared copy of O'Neill's Music of Ireland. I know I do. Ronan gives us a fascinating look into the life of a man who found adventure, love, and tragedy all while working very diligently to preserve Irish traditional music. Is every detail in the book factual? Maybe not, but it all rings very true. We recorded our conversation in the weeks leading up to Rejigged Festival 2021, but if you're listening to this episode after our festival, no worries. You can revisit all our concerts online. You might even hear a few tunes that Captain O'Neill himself saved from obscurity. Just visit our website, rejiggedfestival.com, for more information. Okay, my name is Christine Donnelly-Mohn, and I'm here um, representing Rejigged Festival, and Ronan O'Driscoll and I are going to talk about his book that he wrote. So the title of the book is Chief O'Neill, and it's published by Somerville Press, which is based in Bentry, County Cork, in Ireland, um, which is actually the town... That it, where the guy who the book is about, Francis O'Neill, is from. So it's kind of amazing uh, circumstance the publisher is based there. Uh, he's very popular in Bentry. They have a statue to him uh, near where he, not in Bentry itself, but outside the town, near where he uh, came from, which is where the book starts so when he's around 16. And this would have been 1866, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he basically falls out with his father, and uh, they, he takes off and uh, has a life of adventure for a bit. Uh, goes around the world as a sailor uh, in merchant ships. Ends up in Chicago in America and marries an Irish woman. Uh, and they arrive there right before the Great Fire of 1871. Part of the reason I wrote about him was I lived in Chicago for about six years as a teenager. My, my, my dad, he worked over there and we, we moved over with him. And he, um, he's kind of a hero in the Irish-American community there. So um, there's, you know, here's this history of this guy who arrived at this time, the Great Fire. But of course, what happened after the fire was the city was rebuilt. And that's where all this, the whole tradition of skyscrapers and everything. And um, he grew with the city. He ultimately became chief of police. That's why the book is Chief O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And um, also, as a thread all through his life, he was a musician, played the flute, and he, um, you know, always in traditional music, right? And he saw that it was dying, that the, the music, the tradition that he had grown up with in Cork, um, because of all the immigration, all the trouble in Ireland, uh, was, was, was dying. So he took it upon himself to try and gather as many tunes as he could. Thank you. 
what he argued was, because people would, at the time criticised him, why would you uh, produce this, uh, why should we, you know, accept you, you're a policeman, you're not an academic, you know, and you're so far away from Ireland. But there were so many Irish immigrants mm-hmm. in Chicago at the time um, that he could actually, you know, with his contacts in the force, who he, he often hired musicians uh, onto the force, right? Uh, he would kind of co-opt them a little bit to to uh, fine tunes that they heard, you know, and there was such a large body of a sampling, if you like, of people from Ireland mus- musically were still playing tunes and still uh, keeping the music up that he thought this was as good a way as any to try and collect all the tunes. Well, I've got a couple questions for you about the book and yeah. the writing of it. Yeah, and, great. Um, first of all, the book is full of these little subtitles. Right. So do you want to tell me where they came from? Yes. So it's partly, you know, kind of an homage to his own um, uh, famous book, right? Which I meant to say, actually, I, I forgot, is called The Bible by a lot of musicians, ah. right? So it's it's this this kind of sacred tome, right? Mm. But the funny thing is because people were passing these tunes, you know, just by the sound of them, the the, the names often got lost or warped, you know, from place to place. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would, quite often from what I I read, um, they would just throw up their hands and say, we'll just call this one, you know, like like the very first one here, the prologue of the book is Chief O'Neill's favorite. Yeah. So it was one he liked. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. You know? uh, and a hornpipe that, that yeah that he liked, right? Yeah. So so there was instead of doing that, he had to put a title for the when they published it. Mm-hmm. So he would and he would put it in English. So like he'd put Chief O'Neill's favorite, and then he would put it in Irish. Okay, and I think my edition has lost that. Yes, the sure. the original yeah. edition had that, and um, so he was an Irish speaker. Uh, he would have had some. I don't. It's. It's. I'm not sure how fluent he would have been because he was the generation at that point. Um, so he would have been. They would have had a small farm. They would have been relatively well off. They wouldn't have been struggling as hard as other parts of the country or other, you know, um, people. And he would have had some Irish, but it wouldn't have been. They would have encouraged. Their, the, the, his parents would have encouraged the younger generation to speak English. Mm-hmm. And that's how Irish got lost because mm-hmm. it was seen as, you know, it, you would keep yourself in the, you know, back if you didn't have English. And of course, you know, now they're trying to bring it back. But, and he was part of that movement to bring it back, mm-hmm. right? The Gaelic League. The Gaelic League. And he, he corresponded with members of the Gaelic League. And there was a guy, Henneberry, who's at the mm-hmm. end of the book, um, who promoted him as a, you know, an authority to be respected because he, he had that status in Ireland. Mm-hmm. But his idea was that everyone should speak Irish. And he kind of, you know, he was kind of of that purest mm-hmm. uh, trend. Whereas I don't think Francis O'Neill was himself because he couldn't, because he wasn't a fluent native speaker, although he admired the language and was always trying to learn it more. And you can see in his notebooks, which I was looking enough with my research, I, I got to see some of his notebooks that he was um, he was into like study of of Gaelic, mm-hmm. but um, he he you know he he accepted that this tradition of music has left Ireland, and, and I think that's why he's important because he was able to kind of 
give it this great boost by writing these books, um, even though he was in, you know, Illinois, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's that's great, right? Yeah. That, that's, I think, is the most important part of his legacy because you talked about, you know, needing the dots, you're not having this pure tradition of growing up in this, mm-hmm. which is almost a kind of a romantic notion, isn't it? It's not a realistic. 100%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So so he, he didn't have, he, he saw past that, I think, and he wanted to kind of, um, um, you know, preserve it by broadcasting it. And, and that's why, it, it, you know, there's people playing sessions all over the world now, mm-hmm. right? So you could go to a pub in Tokyo and there'll be people there and there'll be half the, the, the crowd there will be Japanese or whatever playing equally as well, if not better than anyone else there. So mm, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. great. And, and, you know, and now instead of going to, you know, listening to the elders as it were by the fireplace, now we have, like the session.org and people go on the internet or YouTube, mm-hmm. right? And I think he would have appreciated that. The session.org is full of cranky people. <laughs> yes, it is it a is. little bit like listening to elders if you look at yes, the Yes, there is a touch yeah. of that there, yeah. yeah. There are a lot of different themes within this book, mm-hmm. but I think one of the strongest ones is that it's an immigrant's tale. Right. And uh, would you see this as an Irish story or as an American story? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's half and half, really, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, an immigrant lives in both worlds, right? So you have the roots in the home country and then you have, you know, the new country, as it were. And, and you're somewhere in between, you're never fully at home in either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should tell our audience that Ron and I are both immigrants. Yes, so that's right. We understand this. Well, I'm a triple one, I guess, because I moved, you know, as a teenager, we moved to Chicago and then we moved back to Ireland. And then I moved to Canada, like yourself, mm-hmm. um, about 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, and I think increasingly this is the world we live in, right? More of, you know, things before all this uh, pandemic stuff happened things are more mobile right yeah yeah but it's it's an interesting so there's a dynamic there like it's not an american story it's not uh, but when, now that you mentioned that one of the things i did when i was uh, kind of researching and everything i did i did a lot of traditional standard historical research mm-hmm. looking at those kind of books but also i read a lot of novels from the time. Oh, interesting. So, like, um, oh, is that how you got the voice? Well, that's what I think that would help for sure. Like the jungle, um, uh, Sinclair, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so that's about the stockyards, and he spent some time in there. So that that helped with that, and there were other other books as well. Um, and you know, I I think when you're reading something that's a novelization of a life, you you don't want to be too stuck in the facts, right? Like, right. You know, so it's 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 more impressionistic, and that's why you can do things like balancing that. Is it Irish? Is it is it American? Mm-hmm. You know, is it, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find Francis's voice? Right. And do you think he speaks with a cork slash carry accent? Like <laughs> well, I you? know he does. <laughs> Yeah. Because, so this is one of the great things, and that's why I mentioned the internet uh, in relation to him. He was always into new tech. And again, his notebooks, he was big into science of the time and studying up on it. 
and um, he recorded on wax cylinders mm. all the players around him that the kind of like Patsy Tui, uh, Eddie Cronin, these 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 local guys who were top top notch, right? And he as where, part, where are these cylinders now? They are actually available online. Oh, yeah. So they're in uh, the ITMA, the Irish Traditional Music Archive in. Cork, I think they are. I think it's Cork. It might be Dublin, but and also the original set or some of them. It's split between there and um, Milwaukee. But if you just Google Francis O'Neill wax cylinders, mm-hmm. you'll find and you can listen to the MP3s. Oh, great! Yeah, and I'm, I'll never forget the first time I heard because he at the start they're only like one or two minutes, and at the start <laughs> he just kind of backs out who's sit playing and the tune, and it was like listening to my grandfather. Interesting. Yeah. So even though, you know, this would have been, well, not that far in time. Like my granddad would have been born in 1920. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it would have been, you know, a few decades before that. So things wouldn't have changed that much. And uh, yeah, there, it's very much, a, still, even though he was a, this venerable chief of police, yeah. he still had quite a strong Cork accent. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so he probably contributed to that whole uh, stereotype. Uh, yes, of the, the Irish, Irish cop. Yes, yeah, yeah that you see up, in Hollywood. Yeah, and Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely, yeah. But he was not, he was, I'd say he wasn't a typical cop at the same time because he was very known for being, you know, very, I, I won't say rigid, but he always was letter of the law. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and of course, Chicago was very corrupt. I mean, it's still... It kind of is still. <laughs> yeah, I don't, with any, if anyone from Chicago is listening, you know... Yeah. Sorry. You're not going to disagree with us. <laughs> yeah, that's but, right. Um, but it has had a reputation. Yes. Well, the reason they call it the Windy City yes. is not because of the wind that comes off that's the right. lake. Yeah. It's because of the blowhard politicians. Yes, that's and right. the corruption. Yeah. So that's, it's, you know, stereotypes exist for a reason in right. terms of that. But yeah. uh, so he, so his do you voice... think that he did not... Uh, participate in the corruption or you know he, he it, when or... he wrote it so one of the big uh things i had as a as a resource was his own memoir and i mean he's writing his memoir so you know how historically accurate is that but um he would quote things from newspapers and stuff about um and and there were people who tried to get him to you know go along with something and then they could say they had him as it were in their pocket mm-hmm. right um but he always resisted that and like he was elect, he was the first chief to be re-elected after an administration changed, which is I think you know I can't remember if it was Republican to Democrat or, or the other way around, but it was it's a sign that he was respected as being an honest mm-hmm. guy. Probably if you met him today, you might say he's a bit too honest, like a bit straight laced, mm-hmm. and his writing is a little like that. Like he doesn't go emotional very much at all. Which and that's why I keep coming back to his voice because, you know, reading those memoirs, they're great and entertaining, especially the early bits where he's talking about going to like Japan and being shipwrecked in the Pacific and things like that. And it's amazing stuff. But at the same time, there were lots of other things in his life that he didn't talk about, Mm -hmm. such as the fact that of his 10 kids, six of them died. Right. Uh, Including the last one who died at 18, you know, when they were you know, they, they weren't in abject poverty at that point, yeah. right? So, oh, yeah, it's it's remarkable to think why, like somebody nowadays, that would be a glaring omission. Mm-hmm. And why, why, and of course, you know, we should never judge the past by our own time. 
right? Um, it's, it's not fair. And, you know, that was the Victorian era, you know, the stiff upper lip mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was obviously played into it too. But I think he had that side of him that was kind of um, uh, reserved. Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe that's... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think it's cultural too? I think that's a very yeah. good point. Yeah, I think there was a good bit of that too. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, like, even in his memoir, he's, he's talking about this break with his own dad. Right. And it was over. Like He wanted to go to university to pursue studies um, in art and design, actually, mm -hmm. um, which would have been Just amazing. So forward thinking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it was probably like 100 years ahead mm -hmm. of his time, maybe. And uh, of course, his dad was a farmer and he said, no way. Mm -hmm. And and uh, basically he just couldn't take it and left. But he doesn't even when he's talking about it, there's a he's kind of trying to keep it out of it when he's writing about it. Uh, it's kind of keeping a distance. And his memoirs were only published in 2008. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, so by his uh, his great-granddaughter, uh, I guess they had it in the family and they put it together in a, a nice piece. It's a great uh, read, actually. Hmm. Um, so Northwestern University puts it out. And, and those wax cylinders, those were lost oh. for, geez, I think it was like, it's only like in the last 10, 20 years, I can't remember the exact date, that they were found again. They're so fragile too. Yes. The fact that they last. Yeah, they don't last at all. Like you can only play them yeah. like a few times and then that's it. So they, the fact that they're on MP3 now is mm -hmm. is, is incredible. But uh, yeah, yeah, they're, 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 it's, you know, how do you how do you give a voice to someone from so long ago? It's, it was part of the challenge. And yeah. I, I think, so my own take on it is, is that I had this interesting parallel to his life. So I'd gone to Chicago. No, nothing near as exciting and adventurous. <laughs> I will never say that. Quite the opposite. But yet I'd been to Chicago as a young person. Um, you know, I, I had been to Japan like he had, and he talked, he liked Japan, you know, that, and, and of course the whole being Irish in America, what that's like, I don't think it's changed hugely from my time when I was there in the eighties. So I, I think that helped me, those things helped give him a voice mm -hmm. as well as, finding out these other facts of his life uh, and trying to put that in on top of the, the facts, as it were. Will you read us a section? Okay. Uh, this is towards the end of the book, so he's, uh, he's coming up on the force as well at the time. Sorry I'm late, lads. Francis rushed into Cronin's front parlour. James was seated uncomfortably in one of the narrow chairs. Cronin was in his usual position on the piano stool wearing a peeved expression. Honestly, Francis, said Cronin, I wonder if you value these meetings at all. You're always late. Francis was taken aback. He took off his coat and put it on a nearby chair before answering. It's my new job downtown, said Francis. I'm working late most nights. Congratulations again, Frank, said James in his gruff way. Francis grinned at him, retrieving his flute from the depths of his heavy blue coat. How are things at the mill, Jim? he asked. The big man shrugged. I don't know. We had another strike lately. Foreman's threatening to lay us all off. It's early days, but I might be able to help you on that score. Ever want to be a policeman? James gave Francis a surprised look. I'd appreciate that, he replied. What are we playing anyway? interrupted Cronin. Francis was surprised, but lifted his flute to his lips. I've been thinking of this air all day, he said. I'd forgotten it, and I'm afraid I'll lose it again. Do either of you know it? He launched into a slow tune. 
The proposal, said James, after Francis had finished. Lovely air. My version's a bit different. He drew his bow slowly on the first notes, dwelling on the beseeching nature of the opening phrase. Francis listened with a stricken look on his face. He lunged for James, grabbing his right arm. Good God, shouted Cronin. What's got into you, Francis? Francis stepped back, raising his hands. James stared at him in confusion and surprise. I'm so sorry, Jim, he said. I'm afraid that if I hear your version, I'll lose my own. That's fine, replied James with a shrug. Why don't you just write both down? He's terrible at transcription. (laughs) Francis sat down, burning with shame. He could not look at either of them. Here, said James, I think your way goes like this. He delivered the alternative air with ease. So let me get that down. He scribbled the notes down on a blank piece of paper, expertly scratching out quavers and crotchets. Francis watched with open admiration, abashed at his earlier outburst. Just to be sure, play the last part again, said James. Francis lifted his flute and, heart racing, rendered the final phrase, the answer to the proposal. James jotted it down. Right, there you are. He handed the paper to Francis. I don't know what to say, said Francis. I think you just saved this air from oblivion, or at least my version of it. My old teacher used to play it. I'll put my version down after it. I think yours might be the better of the two, though. Now I'll have to get you on the force with me. I'd not thought music transcription was a skill many policemen needed, joked James. Gentlemen, announced Cronin, standing up. I think you should go now. (laughs) What? Why? asked Francis in amazement. We've only just started. I'm tired of this. Besides, I have work myself early in the morning. Good night. He ushered them out of his home, the surprised men scrambling to pick up their belongings. Outside, in the snow, they looked at each other wide-eyed before bursting out laughing. Why is Cronin so cranky? Well, he's kind of a cranky, but reading between the lines, uh, he he's he's just kind of annoyed that James is because uh, Cronin and uh, was going to be the main collaborator, uh-huh. but then and and I imagine as well because James, whose last name was O'Neill, James O'Neill, who was his, his his name is on the cover, there, yeah. right? Uh, he was basically the editor. Yeah. Um. He he uh, kind of supplanted him. And I imagine, he, and he came from kind of humble beginnings from Belfast. And uh, maybe Eddie Cronin wasn't too impressed with him oh, a little bit. <laughs> so that's, again, yeah. you know, that's that's the fun of fiction. You can kind it's of imply great. these it's things. But then, of course, so I'm reading that. Right. And I'm running at my O'Neill's and look up the proposal. <laughs> and it's not in that one. And it's not in here. So that's, is that the 1001? Is that... This is the over 1000 fiddle tune. Right, right. So th- th- that's kind of, uh, is that Mel Ray? That, that, that's kind of, I, I don't know which one that's based on. There yeah, were two. I don't know. There's, there was the, the first one. Actually, it's all here. It's right on the end here. Uh, the first one was uh, the 1850 tunes. The first one was 1903, O'Neill's Music of Ireland, and that was 1850, which is a huge amount yeah. of tunes, right? Yeah. Uh, and then 
the thousand and one, which I think that one is based on, uh-huh. is the dance music of Ireland. That was 1907. I was a bit liberal uh, with where I would take things from. I, I, I kind of, uh, I tried to, especially when it's hard. So I, I should mention each section mm-hmm. is the title of a tune. Right. And it, right. it applies to the section. Mm-hmm. So out in the ocean, which mm-hmm. a lot of people probably know that the, the name of the tune. So that's the first time he's out in the sea and that kind yeah. of thing. Right. So that's it kind great. of applies Very to the good. theme. Yeah, yeah. It, was just, it was a nice and it, it was a nice way to kind of string the different things together. So yeah. a nice theme through it. Absolutely. Also, uh, were there instances in what would happen if he had the proposal and the proposal too? Right. How would he? How would he work those in his book? Yeah, there's, there's. Um, well, one of the things that that happened um, was the, there's no um, ornamentation or variation, right? Yeah. So they kind of picked one. A lot of the time, picked the one they like the best. So while he's saving Irish music, he's, he's also, also yeah. uh, condemning some tunes to a He's making a, a, a canon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, in fairness, you know, 1850 is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'm, <laughs> but not I don't complaining. You're saying. I'm not complaining. And, and, and there he's, are, he's, he's just, being he's criticized editing, for he's that. He's editing it. He's editing, know, yeah. And, uh, and, and but, you know, I, I would look at it in the context of the time of trying to get as much as possible and with limited resources, mm-hmm. like they were amateurs in some ways, uh, and, you know, they were policemen yeah. and, um, you know, trying. And, and also it was a 19th century thing, uh, this whole idea of encyclopedias, right? Mm-hmm. And that was respected that you'd have a big book with everything in it and it kind of put Irish music on the map, right? Um, but yeah, there, there definitely, there was probably pruning went on there mm-hmm. and stuff got missed, mixed, missed out on. Yeah. And some of his tunes, I, I've, I've read, I've seen this, that some of them are very similar and they were, even though they have different names and they reckon he was just trying to keep it under, you know, mm-hmm. just put a different title on it. Yeah. But there's, that's the interesting thing. If you, if you just scan through your book there or his, you know, the originals, there's just that Irish title, a number and the English title and then the mm-hmm. notes and then the next one, and the yes. next one, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. So, and and then he had all kinds of problems as well with the, the font for the Gaelic writing, yeah. which I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, the, Tell me more about that. Well, they they just they, they never printed anything in Irish before. So right? they didn't have the fada. The, they didn't have fadas, and he wanted it in a kind of a, a bit like, like Gaelically. Yeah, of. yeah, that kind of Irish font. You so know? how would that work? They would have had a special typeface, um, I guess. Typeface, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like downloading it. No, no, them, that's you know, right. Yeah, you have to order, yeah. especially from. Yeah, and he went. Europe. He had his books published at um, Lion and Healy, who are still there in Chicago. Oh wow! There's that's a music shop. Yeah, it's incredible. I, I yeah. loved. I didn't. I didn't get a chance when I was there to go and visit the place, but I believe they're still there. Mm. Um, and I guess he had a lot of wrangling and back and forth, and he probably put a good bit of his own money into the books, mm-hmm. right? Because it was such a any passion project. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Ends so up having that happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um. So, fair to say he was a little obsessed. Yes, that's right. Well, <laughs> that's a nice segue into the 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 the, the other page or two I, I could read is yes. Um, 
obsessed with, with pretty much yeah describe yeah. that yeah um, very very uh, passionate about music and just like always going around with the tune in your head yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I guess I mean I, I don't know I, I kind of musicians are like that right I mean uh, I, I, I have gone to bed thinking of a tune yeah woken up thinking of the same tune right and, yeah I know what you mean and then you have to learn it and then yeah you move on to the next one that's right yeah. that's right yeah. so yeah and you know would it, I'm sure he would have driven his wife Anna was her name mm -hmm. crazy um, although apparently she was into dancing um, but what little we know about her she was from Fecal in County Clare and um, but um, I imagine he was just you know on a whole other level of being obsessed about music and tunes as you can imagine yeah so i actually uh, that's a great segue of uh, this other little piece i could read here okay it's like again just a page and a half so okay. and the tune it's that is the title is whistle and i'll wait for you uh south halstead street chicago october 1876 Behind the broad windows of the barbershop, men stretched out in reclining wooden chairs. Before high mirrors and ornate lamps, quick, brilliantined barbers stepped around their customers, making conversation and tending to hair and whiskers. Francis rubbed the back of his neck, feeling the length of his hair. It would only take ten minutes. A shave too, perhaps. The high door opened with a jingle as he entered. Officer O'Neill called the barber from behind the counter. What can we do for you today? A trim, I think, said Francis, taking a seat beside a couple of other men wearing dark suits. They studied their newspapers, pretending not to notice him. I can take you right away, replied the barber, turning a chair around towards him. Francis looked at the men sitting nearby. Nobody returned his glance. Ah, no, I'll read for a minute. Let these men go ahead. The barber smiled and ushered the next man forward with a flourish of a towel. Francis frowned at the cover of the misnamed Police Gazette, a burlesque dancer arching a leg ensconced in fishnet stockings. He selected the Daily News, a seemlier paper, and scanned the headlines. A handwritten sign to his right read, Challenge Laundry Service. An older boy came through the shop pushing a handcart piled with soiled linen, for the laundry in the basement. He loaded tagged bags into a dumb waiter and cranked the, blank, the black iron wheel, slowly lowering the clothes. Sounds escaped from the women working below, shouts, laughter, snatches of song. Francis jumped up. Hold it there, son, he shouted. The barbers froze, cutthroats and sharp scissors poised in midair. The laundry boy blanched. His eyes darted to the smutty paper on the low table. I didn't do nothing with it, protested the boy, acne-scarred face pale with fear. Francis ignored him. He tiptoed over, ear bent to the dumbwaiter. He strained to catch a faint sound of song wafting up from below, muffled shouts and laughter when the distant singer finished. After a minute of listening for more, he sat back down. From his pocket, he retrieved a small Clark tin whistle and repeated phrases from the melody, committing them to memory. The boy stared at him, mouth agape. The owner motioned for him to continue his job. He winked to the other barbers, who smirked back as they returned to their clients. Business resumed as the policeman played quietly, smiling at the new tune.
He always had a whistle with him. That's yes. probably true. Yes, apparently, yes. And and you know what? This is kind of cool. I've played it. Ooh. Yes. Well. <laughs> no, not well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it it it's it, it. They were just a little flat um, uh, strip of tin that they rolled. Yeah. And then they like yeah the the Irish ones aren't as you know the ones at least that when yeah. I was a kid. They were, they were cylinders, like they were formed. It wasn't like a rolled piece, like okay. like you would see over here for penny whistles. Okay. Yeah, the, 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 my, you know, growing up, it was a tin whistle, it was like yeah. that. But um, yeah, the um, Mary uh, Lesh is his great-granddaughter, and mm. she, that's part of what oh, they've wow. kept. So she let me play it, and I was thrilled. How was the tuning on it? I mean, how was Oh, it, it sounds... It just... I, I, I'm not a huge tin whistle player. I could just kind of tootle along yeah. with it, but... Uh, it was an old yeah. instrument, and it was a cheap one, right? Yeah. Like, and, and so, but it, they, he just yeah. had it almost like someone would have a notebook. I think so. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah, that that was all they had to work with, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's great. I feel like we could talk about this book for ages. Yes, I know. I could. We should probably wrap it up. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, because I I do have more. There's a lot more we could talk about. Well, yes. But we might just have to uh, wrap it up and have. No, you'll have to read it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a good book. That's great. Yeah, so thanks very much. Thank you, Christine. Yeah, great. Thanks for joining us and welcoming us into your headphones. If you liked this episode, please give it a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. And since word-of-mouth advertising is the best way for us to make new friends, tell all your friends about Between the Jigs podcast. I'd like to thank the Rejigged Festival, an annual festival in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia that celebrates new directions in Celtic music, dance, and song. For more information about Rejigged Festival and the work we do and the concerts we present, visit our website at rejiggedfestival.com. Talisk is the name of the band that kindly let us use their tune Echo as our theme music. You can find out more about them on their website, talisk.co.uk. Thanks, Talisk. Our incidental music was recorded at a casual beer-fueled Irish session in Halifax. The sessioners kindly allowed me to record them, knowing that they would become incidental in this podcast. Mark is my sound engineer. He's good enough to take very poor recordings and make them palatable. One day, I'll give him a flawless recording and he'll be so very proud. Gut to the Emigrant Support Program of the Department of Foreign Affairs of the Government of Ireland. Thank you for your support. So that's bye for now from me, Christine Donnelly-Mong. Thanks again for tuning in. <laughs>